Chapter 9 Elder Philaretos of Constamanitu What your stature lacked in height, exalting humbleness supplied. Your intellect's simplicity, a treasury of good thoughts enriched, O childlike Elder Philaretos, Monk Mark of Constamanitu. I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Author's Prologue to the Greek Edition my soul has thirsted for thee, and my flesh has longed for thee in a land barren and untrodden and unwatered. Psalm 62.1 The soul thirsts for God, and our people thirsts for its orthodoxy, which the holy monks of the East, the true philosophers, the initiates into the divine mysteries of the heavenly life in Christ, expressed by deed and word. This thirst of our orthodox people has been manifested in recent years, mainly by the avid study of patristic wisdom, but also by the lively enthusiasm with which the volumes of contemporary ascetics of Manathos have been received, one after another. As is known, this series is only a sampling. The virtuous fathers, those sweet-smelling flowers of paradise who spread abroad their overwhelming fragrance in the garden of the Panagia in the first half of the 20th century, constitute an innumerable multitude of unknown spiritual athletes. A selection of them was made based on the amount of biographical material available. Our ever-memorable Athenite elder, Archimandrite Cheryabim, inaugurated the series in the year 1968, giving it, before his repose in the Lord in 1979, its first eight books. After his death, many Orthodox urged and besought us not to abandon this spiritual offering, which has evoked such a great response among the wide, wide strata of our own people and also among our brothers in the faith in other lands, as is apparent from their past and present endeavors to translate it into their own languages. Today, therefore, eight years after the publication of the eighth volume of Contemporary Ascetics of Manathos, we are found in the happy position of continuing this publishing effort in trusting a brotherhood of our monastery, Father Ioannikios, with numbering among their synod yet another star of the Athenite heaven, Father Philartos of Constamanitu. Father Philartos did not belong to the class of learned monks. We were told that he barely graduated from the third grade. He was, however, a graduate of the University of the Cell. And this university, the University of the Desert, by prayer and asceticism, by sobriety and the purification of his heart from passions, he mastered the sciences of self-knowledge, and God-knowledge. The lack of worldly wisdom and the acquisition of divine illumination enrolled the elder among the choir of blessed beings who have the Holy Spirit himself as their guide and teacher, he, he who taught wisdom to the unlearned and made fishermen's theologians. Another fruit of the Holy Spirit in the unforgettable elder was the exemplary meekness which distinguished them. The ever-memorable one was a man of meek soul, the saying of Proverbs applied to him, Every blessed soul is simple. The following venerable aged fathers of the Holy Monastery of Constamanitu give us the material for his biography. Elders Modestos, Pacomius, Niphon, Philartos, Anthony, Euthymios, and Trifon. We owe them warm thanks. We also thank the venerable abbot of the Holy Monastery, Yerunda Agathon, who gave his blessing to Father Mark to deliver to us in writing and systematically many details of the truly philaritos or virtue-loving life 
of Father Philaret. May the prayers of the Holy Elder shelter and support his sacred synobium, as well as all who will be inspired by his wonderful life to join in his spiritual combats. Signed from the Holy Monastery of the Paraclete, 1986. Part 1. O Lord, I have loved thy tabernacles. 1. The Holy Monastery of Constamanitu. One of the more quiet Hesychistic Athenite monasteries is the Holy Monastery of Constamanitu. It is quiet because it is hidden like a mushroom in the forests and ravines of the southwestern side of the Holy Mountain, invisible to the curious eyes of tourists on the sea, leading in obscurity a hidden life which provides the most desirable atmosphere for monks. It is hesychistic because of the venerable fathers and brothers who live there. Both the place and their manner of life make them genuine Cenobitic hesychists. In the deep endless silence of the forest, the many species of songbirds hold sway, especially in the springtime. Their unrivaled leader is the nightingale, who keeps tireless vigil day and night. During the hours of common worship, the fathers sing with compunction and in the manner of the holy mountain. And then the monastery resembles a many-voiced plaintive bird of the wilderness. There are many theories about the founding of the holy monastery of Constamanitu. Its first builder remains unknown. One tradition names St. Constantine the greatest founder, and his son Constinius after him. Another mentions Makarios, bishop of Ihiros, who raised up the monastery after the disaster wrought by Julian the Apostate. Macarius lived during the reign of Arcadius. He is depicted to the left of the Cathilicon wearing a monastic scufo and with the inscription Macarius of Ithiros. Another tradition speaks about a certain hesychist who came from Castamona of Phalagonia, and yet another says that the monastery took its name from the chestnut forests which surrounds it with the two words Castana plus Moni created Chestnut Monastery at Constamanitu. It is certain that the monastery existed in the 11th century because we have information that in the year 1107 the abbot was a certain Hilarion, a relative of Emperor Alexis I Cominos. At the end of the 13th century, the Holy Monastery was attacked by the Latinizing John the 11th Bacos, Patriarch of Constantinople and Emperor Michael Peliegos. They attempted to impose by force their anti-Orthodox views, which concurred with the idea of the primacy of the Pope. And they struck, first of all, at our Acropolis of Orthodoxy, the Holy Mountain. Its monks, ever faithful, considered by some fanatical and unyielding, the defenders of the borders of the truth, our dedicated soul and body to preserving the integrity and independence of the Holy Orthodox faith. The Latinizers, therefore, sent wild beasts in the shape of men to the Holy Mountain, where they lit fires and burned monks, whom to this day the Church celebrates and honors as martyrs and confessors. The monastery of Constamanitu was burned, but unlike the other monasteries, the victims were not recorded. In the year 1351, John V. Peliegos delivered a crucible mentioning the monastery's estates while during the reign of Andronicus II Peliegos, the queen of Serbia, Anna, gave it to the small monastery of St. Anthony on Constamanitu's northwest side and a precious wonder-working icon of the Theotokos.
A general renovation of the monastery took place through the commander-in-chief of Serbia, Ratis, who was tonsured a monk with the name Romanos. Ratis Romanos is considered a great benefactor of the holy monastery, both for his gifts and for his care to establish firmly its Cenobitic order. In 1717, the monastery suffered a great catastrophe from a new conflagration. It was in decline until 1799, when it was reestablished as a cenobium through the solicitude of Patriarch Neophytos VII. The entire reformation of the monastery took place in the second half of the 19th century by the initiative of the energetic abbot Simeon, who came from Stagiera. New buildings were constructed, and a new church, Cathilicon, was erected from the foundations in the year 1867. But let us return to the benefactor general, the monk Radis Romanos. The record of his gifts and offerings mentions, among other things, the following. Quote, I built a monastery in the holy mountain in honor of the holy glorious apostle, proto-martyr, and archdeacon Stephen in a place called Constamanitu. To wit, some buildings I renewed and raised up and for others that were collapsed, I built surrounding walls, and thus I consolidated the holy monastery. For it was fallen down, ruined, and laid waste. I beseech the holy glorious proto-martyr Stephanos to accept this as a rare gift, as the two mites of the widow. In this way, I, with the advice of my spiritual father, the most reverend metropolitan Art Mark, decreed that, as it is a cenobium, all the brothers in common choose the abbot for the holy monastery. Moreover, if, according to my aim, I would happen to come to the holy mountain to become a monk and live the monastic life in my own monastery or in another, I decreed that the holy monastery be obliged to give me repose with all gladness, which is to be the will of the abbot and the monastery council, and my expenses will be covered by the villages, 72 in number, which I dedicate to the monastery. If, furthermore, my spiritual father, Metropolitan Mark, comes to the monastery, I decreed that he may be steward in the monastery as long as he lives. Similarly, if any of my relatives wish to become monks, I decreed that the sacred monastery be obliged to receive them and give them repose. End of quote. This text by the commander-in-chief Radis, later Monk Romanus, is a witness to the undivided concern which the noblemen and dignitaries of that age had for the repair of the buildings and the maintenance, in general, of the holy monasteries. Indeed, many men holding positions of authority, ecclesiastical, political, social, such as Radis Romanos, rightly desired to don the monastic garment and complete the remainder of their lives in peace and repentance as simple monks of the great and holy angelic schema. Together with this text is distinguished the outstanding honor, reverence, and love with which all the Orthodox have surrounded the holy mountain, independently of nationality, through the ages. Indeed, from ancient times until today, the holy mountain has been and remains a center for all Orthodox people, unique in the world in the practice of monastic perfection, a link between all the Orthodox peoples, and an expression of the universality of the Catholicity of our Church in the most noble aspect of Orthodox spirituality in following the life of Christ-like ascetic experience, in the deification of man through pure prayer in the Holy Spirit within Orthodox Athenite monasticism. This also is a blessing of the Mother of God. 
Monks from all the lengths and breadths of the earth inhabit the holy mountain, from east and west, from north and south. Lift up thine eyes about thee, O Zion, and see, for lo, thy children come to thee, from the west and from the north, and from the sea and from the east, as to a beacon lighted by God. Blessing Christ in thee forever. This paschal hymn applies also to the Zion which is called Athos, and within this frankincensed Zion lived as a beacon lighted by God, Father Philartos, from 18, he lived from 1890 to 1963. The abbot of the Holy Monastery of Constantinitu, whose life we will trace out in the following pages. Two, moral purity. The Holy Monastery Register informs us, quote, Elder Philartos was born in the village of Pythia Varias in Macedonia in the year 1890. His father was George Mastoris and his mother Catherine Stigru. In baptism he was named Anthony. He entered the Cenobitic life in the Holy Monastery in November of 1912 and was tonsured a monk of the Great Schema in April of the year 1921 and ordained a hero monk in October of 1924. He was elected abbot in March of 1949 and was installed on May 24th, 21st, excuse me, of the same year. On January 28th, 1963, the day of the Sunday of the Prodigal Son and the commemoration of our holy and God-bearing father Ephraim the Syrian, he reposed in the Lord during the time of Orthos and precisely during the reading of the third cathisma of the Psalter, Psalm 118, and at the verse, I have not forgotten thy statutes. End of quote. As for his physical characteristics, the elder was short in stature, under 1.6 meters, with a round face, black eyes, and well-developed beard. He was sweet in appearance, meek and humble in manner, guileless and exceptionally simple, kindly but a few words. To the gifts of his soul we must add his great obedience and patience, his continual forcing of himself in all the virtues, as well as noetic prayer, abstinence in food, abstinence, absence of contradiction, banishment of anger, lack of passionate interest in any unmonastic matter, his mystical spiritual life, wondrous poverty and irreproachable purity. From his childhood years, the elder received the fiery darts of the enemy, but divine grace preserved him as a pure vessel of election, and he himself struggled to not stain the garment of purity shining bright as snow. Once, when he was still young, he went for a walk with a youth greater in age and stature. Somewhere outside their village, his friend, as he saw some oxen who were grazing further on, was seized by fleshly temptation and rushed against the young Anthony in order to gratis gratify his shameful and despicable desire. Little Anthony then began to cry out for help, but the area was deserted. Immediately seeking divine reinforcement through prayer and being small in body like another David, with a strange and exceptional strength, he pushed his large-bodied acquaintance far away, avoiding the temptation like the fair Joseph, and ran away. His great prudence and inner purity is shown by a second incident, which he related in an edifying and humble manner to one of his disciples. Quote, in America, where I went, I worked in a shoe-shining parlor. Many people passed through to have their shoes polished. A very beautiful young girl of a great family also came through. 
Well, since my co-workers were men who feared the temptation of the flesh, they sent me to serve her because I did not feel any particular temptation. At the end, she also gave me a good tip. God covered me. I felt no temptation. End of quote. If we think of the fact that he lived in America from the age of 18 to 22, that is during the years when the greatest boiling of nature and rebellion of the flesh is felt, then we realize that Anthony must have had exceedingly abundant grace from God to remain pure and passionless. Even within the tumult of America, with its many fascinations, divine help walled him around and preserved him unburnt and untouched like the three children in the furnace. From the Ladder of Divine Ascent, Step 15, He who has conquered the flesh has conquered nature, and he who has conquered nature has without fail risen to the state above nature, and he who has attained this is made a little lower than the angels, which is not to say that he is at all less than them. End of quote. Anthony also, even before he became a monk and hero monk, Philartos, was an earthly angel, a little lower than the heavenly angels, since he bore flesh. He was a fleshly angel. Having such a foundation of a clean life, a purified heart, in his youth he acquired capital of strength and resistance against the temptations of the future. At times when Satan assaulted him with shameful thoughts, he had already become a monk. He was forced to increase his spiritual labors. Thus he rose every night earlier than the other brothers and prayed with burning tears before the icon of Our Lady the Theotokos, the sweet kissing, which she had hanging in his cell. One night, as he was engaged in agonizing and persistent prayer, the icon shone and filled his little cell with abundant light. At the same moment, the shameful thoughts disappeared, and his heart was filled with an indescribable joy, peace, and blessedness. Who has conquered the body? He who has made the heart contrite. Who then has made the heart contrite? he who has denied himself. By such temptations and with the passing of time, the battle-ready struggler obtained spiritual experience of the noetic warfare of the demons and passions. At the same time, he began to receive inward knowledge of the ways divine grace acts in the athletes of the spiritual life. It was this experience which also bore fruit in the soul of the contemporary elder, St. Joseph the cave-dweller, as written in the book Eagerly he ascended, an expression of monastic experience. The following is a quote from the 10th chapter entitled, Grace Always Precedes Temptations as a Forewarning Preparation. Quote, he knew that grace always precedes temptations as a forewarning preparation. As soon as you perceive grace, gird yourself up and say, Here comes the call to battle. Beware. Attend, O clay to where the wicked one will strike the battle. Many times it comes quickly, and many times after two or three days. And in any event, it will come, and the earthworks must be firm. Confession every evening, obedience to the elder, humility and love toward all. By these means lighten the affliction. Grace is divided into three stages, purifying, enlightening, and perfecting. So also are deeds, natural, supernatural, and contranatural. According to these three stages, one ascends and descends. The great gifts one receives are also three, contemplation, love, 
dispassion. 3. He sought to see Jesus. Anthony, short in stature like Zacchaeus, great in seeking, high in spiritual ascents, a lover of divine treasures, had, as we said, gone to America at the age of 18. There he worked hard for one of his uncles, who was himself a struggler in the spiritual life, a support and aid in the combats of his nephew. For the noble soul of Anthony, America was a huge mob, a mass production and crowd, prosperous in material goods and fleshly comfort, worshipper of idols. All these things hindered the course and the longings of his youthful heart, which resembled a thirsting deer. He sought to see Jesus with an urgency like that of Zacchaeus, but he had to find a sycamore tree. From there, high above the mob and the clamor, above the dizziness and the confusion, he would be able to see Jesus, and this sycamore tree would be the holy mountain. Here is how divine providence arranged matters. When he was returning with his uncle from America to Greece, they passed through France. They spent the night at a hotel, and in the morning rose to board the ocean liner which would convey them to their fatherland. But, strangely, Anthony's uncle forgot his identification papers at the hotel. You wait for me, and I will go to the hotel to fetch my identification, his uncle told him. But while he was yet returning, the ship with the young Anthony on board left without him, to the end, however, of leading the lover of God to his divine destiny. By a happy coincidence, Anthony arrived in Thessaloniki on the day of the surrender of the city to the Greeks, on the feast day of St. Demetrios the Murgusher, in the year 1912. His heart was full of compunction and gratitude to the saint, who is pure and a friend of purity and the protector of myrrh-gushing purity. He went and venerated his tomb, and in the evening the saint returned the visit. He visited him in his sleep and told him, Do not go to the village. Go to the holy mountain and become a monk. And Anthony, the child of obedience, indeed traveled with rejoicing feet to the garden of the Panagia. Although there was no regular communication then, the difficulties on the road did not daunt him. He traveled by foot, without stopping, and arrived auspiciously at the village of Gomadi in Halkidiki. From there he chartered a donkey with a driver and set out with the intention of going to the holy monastery of the great Lavra. They passed through Oranupoli, and then as they had planned to go through Keries, they stopped at the holy monastery of Constamanitu. The Holy Monastery of Constamanitu is dedicated to the Holy Proto-Martyr and Archdeacon Stephen. As we mentioned above, according to tradition, his holy icon, which dates from the 8th century, came to the mountain from Jerusalem in a miraculous manner during the iconoclast period. When Anthony venerated the icon of St. Stephen, when he saw the hesychistic surroundings of the monastery, the love of the Holy Fathers, the Cenobitic Typicon, Everything attracted him. He sought to see Jesus, and lo, the blessed hour has come. Here, on the holy mountain, in the holy monastery of Constamanitu, the meeting with him, the acquaintance, the joyful, life-long knowledge of the mystery of divine love, the revelation of God within him, would take place. When one stands before St. Stephen, at the right-hand iconostasis, before the proto-martyr, whose face was like the face of an angel, there comes to mind the supreme hymn of praise of our Father among the saints, Proclus, Patriarch of Constantinople. 
O strange wonders of the stranger king, yesterday he was born, and today the martyr Stephanos brings to him a crown. Stephanos, living crown. Stephanos, budding of many flowers for the faithful. Stephanos, most sweet-scented rose of love. Stephanos, most heavenly-laden wheat ear of grace. Stephanos, fruitful branch of the ever-living vine. Stephanos, honeyed grape cluster of immortality. Stephanos, immovable pillar of confession. Stephanos, invincible soldier of piety. Come, let us plate for Stephanos a crown of a weave until now unachieved. Footnote for the Greek for Stephen, Stephanos is the Greek word also for crown. To continue, when he turned his gaze on the holy icon, Anthony felt that St. Stephen, the saint, filled with the Holy Spirit and with power, was calling him to remain, that he might become to him the friend of the bridegroom and conductor of the bride, Anthony's soul, and that he might give to the bride, to his virtue-loving soul, a burning lamp of virtue. Resolving, therefore, to reside permanently in this holy monastery, he called the driver of the donkey and informed him that he did not intend to travel any further. I will stay here. St. Stephanos has captured me, he told him. He was then 22 years old. 4. Three Wonder-Working Holy Icons The heretical Jehovah Witnesses, like the Evangelical Protestants, accuse us Orthodox of being idolaters because they say we worship the holy icons. The accusation is unjust and impious. Orthodox Christians following the Holy Fathers render honorary veneration to the sacred and holy icons of our Lord, our Theotokos, and our saints. This honorary veneration ascends to the prototype, according to the Holy John Damascene. That is to say, when we reverently honor the sacred icon, the honor is not given to wood or to paint, to the materials from which it is made. The honor is given and goes over to the person who is the prototype of the sacred image. The militant Jehovah Witnesses and the watertight rationalistic Protestants are not able to understand that warm Orthodox living experience before a sacred Byzantine icon. They are strangers to the spiritual feeling and theology of Orthodox iconography, alienated from the mystery of the Church. For Orthodox Christians, and especially for the monks of the Holy Mountain, the sacred and holy icons are an inseparable part of divine worship. Upon our holy icons is depicted the course of our salvation, our sanctification, our deification. The nature of our Byzantine icons is liturgical and at the same time dogmatical, but before all it is a fruit of the mystical theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Byzantine icon exists as a message, an invitation of the world transfigured in Christ, of the deified face of man united to the Holy Trinity by means of the uncreated energies and the uncreated light. On the holy mountain where every manifestation of worship and sanctifying work has the force and power of genuineness, where active worship is tightly woven together with contemplation, the monks honor most deeply, venerate with awe, and kiss with fervent love the icons on the icon stands in the holy churches, the portable icons, and the many frescoes. They light their lampadas during 
orthos, vespers, compline, during every prayer inside and outside the church, as well as in the chapels and the various small shrines. Transfigured from glory to glory, they live, they dwell together with the presence of the saints, with their holy relics and sacred icons. Every monastery has its own icons with its history, where it's bound. In the holy monastery of Constamanitu, the three icons which stand out and convey sensibly the grace and blessing of God are of St. Stephen, of the Mother of God, Horugrita, and of the Mother of God, Antiphonitra. Excuse me. About the sacred icon of St. Stephen, in whose honor the monastery celebrates its feast day, we have the following information from the time of the reign of Constantine Monomachos. Quote, then also the holy icon of St. Stephen was brought from Jerusalem, which icon stands on the right side of the Catholicon Church, where it is seen and venerated by all. And for an unlying witness of truth, this icon is in the lower part a little burnt by the iconoclasts, since it was thrown into the fire and did not burn except only a part, and thus it appears until today. In the same manuscript, on the pages of 133 to 134, we read also of the wondrous things performed by the holy icon of the Mother of God, Hodgrita. Seeing these things, the elder and wondrous father Agathon sorrowed greatly and wept with warm tears and prayed with fasting before the holy icon of the Mother of God. And wearied from his much supplication, he fell asleep a little, and coming into ecstasy, saw revelations and heard a voice from the holy icon, of the mother of God. Oh, the wonder, telling him not to grieve and worry over the scandals and temptations occurring, and that the mountain would from that time be quieted from all the sufferings, and for a sign and assurance of what was said, behold, the large jar of the church was filled with oil. Similarly, the other vessels of the monastery were also filled with the necessities of life. When Elder Agathon awoke from spiritual gladness together with marveling timidity he did not believe the word of the mother of God that this vision was true. Therefore he sought for a light, and lighting a lamp, went to the cask of the church to ascertain the truth. And seeing the true miracle, he was astonished and afraid, and in a loud voice proclaimed to all the brotherhood the great miracle of the Theotokos. And thus he related the things he had seen and heard from the mother of God. Therefore from that time up to today, a lampada is continuously lit before the holy icon of Our Lady the Theotokos in thanksgiving for the miracle. For the immaterial being of Father Philaret, all the monastery's holy icons constituted a foretaste of the space and time of eternity. But the wonder-working icons of the proto-martyr and archdeacon and of the mother of God Hodogritria were the living witnesses of the joy-giving sorrow by which eternity illuminated the elders' monastic spiritual experience. This was shown by the deep reverence, together with the joy, intimacy, and compunction with which he venerated these icons every day in all the services of the monastery. Part 2 of Elder Philaret of Constamanitu Oh, how I have loved thy law, O Lord! One Meritic obedience. Come hither, O struggler, come near me and stand ardent. Thou dost excel all, as is written by God, for thou dost walk the path of the first martyr. 
St. Theodore the Studite, to a disciple. With these beautiful verses, the saint also addresses, as it were, the struggler and athlete of blessed obedience, the novice Anthony. A disciple is considered a martyr of Christ, according to the Holy Fathers. He walks the path of the martyrs. Anthony performed not only a single but a double and triple martyritic obedience for three different reasons, as we will see. It was the custom, then, to send novices to serve in the monastery Matokia, which were scattered outside the holy mountain. Our novice followed this rule. As soon as he entered the monastery, he was immediately sent to the Matokian of Tripotamos. As he was given the obedience of cellarer, he had the duties of cooking for the steward, the assistant steward, and the workers, of setting the table, washing the dishes, sweeping, distributing food to the workers, taking care that food was not lacking from the cellar, and being completely obedient. Life in the Matoki is very difficult for monks, and especially for novices. For one thing, they are deprived of their precious silence, and for another, many laymen, men, women, and children, they work in the Matokia. It is a life of continual struggle amidst a furnace of temptations and scandals. This was the first cause which made the obedience of our novice meritic. But the fires of the devil and the burnings of the flesh, the snares of the world, did not prove sufficient to check the divine zeal of our beginning monk or to harm the purity of the recruited soldier of Christ. At the same time, the steward of the Matokian was a very hard man, eternal be his memory. He was known throughout all the holy mountain for his steel-like temper. Woe to anyone who happened to cross him in anything. He was exacting and irritable in the extreme. With this man, Anthony's life was a true martyrdom. But he practiced patience and was long-suffering toward everyone. The steward, therefore, was the cause of his second martyrdom. His third great trial was of illness. He suffered for a long time from a severe case of dysentria. Thus Anthony was purified like gold in the furnace. And what other means of purification are more sure than obedience and humility and long-drawn-out illnesses? For six months he was bedridden, suffering from pain, stench, exhaustion, a pretubercular condition and before all from the steward's neglect and indifference. But divine grace sent him great consolation, strength of soul, and manifest intervention. In this trial of soul and body, the novice Anthony became the child of patience and could say to the Lord, For the sake of the words of thy lips, I have kept the ways that are hard. One day he saw, as in a vision, a young man who came in and stood opposite him, shining with unutterable beauty. Anthony, you are still in pain. Your patience has pleased God, he said, and became invisible. Who else? It was St. Stephen. After this event, he was examined by two or three doctors. Their diagnosis, perfect health. The doctor of the Lavra, monk Athanasios Campanos, wrote in a report to the monastery, for the first time in the annuals, I have seen such lungs, such a youthful organism, as if they belonged to a three-year-old child. The steward was struck speechless by the miracle. He asked forgiveness for his behavior. My child, I have grieved you beyond measure, he said again and again, repenting.
2. Liturgical Ardor Returning to the Holy Monastery from the Matokian, the brave novice, after passing his exams as a novice, and for the sake of his excellent conduct, was tonsured a monk in May of 1915 and named Philaret. They entrusted him with the blessed but fatiguing obedience of Ecclesiarch. Nothing, however, was tiring for the abundant goodwill, the full, enthusiastic eagerness, and the virtue-loving Philaret, heart of the rightly named monk Philartos. He flew through the church like an angel of light, like a ministering spirit sent to serve. The ecclesiarch is the monk who is occupied with many different duties in the church. He lights the lampadas, he washes, he polishes the brass candlestands, the palielos, and the candle holders. He sweeps and mops, prepares pure, clean candles, incense, wick holders, wicks, wax lampadas, repairs the stasides, the stalls, and so forth. All this he does outside the time of services. During the divine services, he has other duties, with the result that he must be upright and moving continually, dressed in his many pleated mantia, which symbolizes the wings of angels. Furthermore, he has the care of being attentive, of not making noise, and of being uncritically obedient to the abbot and the serving priest. The blessed Philaratos proved to be a model of a diligent and tireless ecclesiarch. During a divine service, after he had arranged everything decently and in order, he confined himself to his stall, head bent, submerged, in the sweet prayer of one who loves Jesus. Music he never managed to learn, and when he did sing, his voice was unusually was usually hoarse. But what significance had this shortcoming? Poor-voiced he was, but of exalted mind, uneducated, but initiated into the divine and ineffable choir of the bodiless ones. In April of 1929, he was ordained a hero deacon. In this first rank of the priesthood, he felt a special relationship with the proto-martyr and archdeacon Stephen, the guardian and protector of his holy synobium. Three years later, in October 1924, he was ordained a hero monk. From the day of his ordination to the priesthood until the day of his repose, the elder served liturgy daily, without interruption. Every day his soul thirsted, yearned, pined for the divine liturgy. Few would be the occasions, chiefly for health reasons, when he would not perform the mystery of mysteries, the divine Eucharist. He lived to liturgize, and he liturgized to live. For without the divine liturgy he felt dead, bereft of Christ, who is the life and the resurrection, the light and the repose? At that time, there were two other hero monks beside the abbot, but the one, Father Agapios, was very sickly, while the other did not greatly desire to serve every day. For this reason, Father Philaretos undertook the permanent duty of performing daily liturgies. Even when the other hero monk decided to serve, the elder went and liturgized at one of the eight quiet, compunctionate chapels of the monastery. Four of these are inside the walls, one of the Theotokos, which has a beautifully carved wooden iconostasis and houses the wonder-working icon of the Panagia Portaisa, which worked many miracles in Russia. Two, inside the walls of the monastery, another small chapel dedicated to St. Constantine. Three, to all saints and four 
to St. Nicholas. Outside the walls are four other chapels, one a chapel dedicated to the holy archangels in the cemetery, another one to the Holy Trinity, another one to Panahuda, a loving diminutive appellation of the Mother of God located in the ravine, and four of St. Anthony the Great at the site of the old monastery. Each one is beautiful and adorned with its own grace. Father Philautus liturgized unceasingly even when his health was shaken, and he suffered hernias on both sides of his body. The hernias were symptoms of the many hours he spent standing upright and laboring every day. To give him rest, the fathers suggested paying an outside priest to serve every day, because later Father Philautus had, besides the daily servings, the duty of abbot and confessor of a multitude of monks, pilgrims, and workers. To this proposal, the blessed and humble elder answered, My fathers, you labor more than I do. I don't know any other work. I only serve liturgy. Let me labor together with you in this way. If my strength fails, then I will tell you to bring an outside hero monk. By his ceaseless liturgizing, he showed not only brotherly love and willingness of soul. He showed the liturgical flame, the zeal of the mystical supper desire for the endless and eternal Pascha, love for the presence of the Master, the entrance of his burning heart into the splendor of the saints. If we think to open this heart, we will see that it burned with a liturgical fire. He had once confided to Father Pacomius that when he served liturgy, he felt a leaping in his soul, a transformation, a revelation to another world. The unceasing singing of the sacred doxology of the Trisagion by the holy angels is generally symbolic of the equal in honor, co-dwelling, mingling, and symphony of the powers of heaven and earth, which will be realized in the future life, since by the resurrection men will receive their deathless bodies. The body will no longer burden the soul by its corruption, nor itself be burdened by it, by its passing to incorruption, it will receive power and capability to endure the coming of God. Quote from St. Maximus, the confessor from his mystagogy. To continue, this spiritual sense of incorruption, of the equal and honor co-dwelling with the angels, of the coming of God, was present in the deepest content of the elders' every divine liturgy. When Father Philartos liturgized, he was all light, all joy, all peace, thoughtful, serious, wet with tears. He also often wept for the carelessness of his co-celebrants. In 1929, Father Philartos was a young hero monk when that terrible fire broke out in the forest of the holy monastery of Vatopedi by the negligence of the coal dealer workers. The fire spread, began to advance towards Constamanitu Monastery. The fathers of the monastery set off to help put out the blaze. In front went Father Philartos, holding in his hand the icon of the Theotokos and encouraging the fathers, saying characteristically with a deep faith, Little fathers, the fire will be out before we arrive. Don't worry. And for the whole length of the road he sang from memory the supplicatory canon to the Mother of God. When the fathers and brothers reached the boundary of the two monasteries, the fire had gone out by itself after previously completely burning the grounds of Vatopedi Monastery. 
The all-devouring blaze did not dare to touch even 10 centimeters of Constantinitu property, even though the boundary was nothing but a footpath between one and two spans wide. Everyone attributed the miracle to the prayers of the young Father Philartos and the in intervention of the Lady Arceotokos. The zeal of the ardent priest to liturgize, to liturgize unceasingly, is shown by the following event. On the night of January 17th, the Feast of St. Anthony the Great, he set out after Orthos to serve liturgy in the chapel dedicated to the saint. This chapel is 500 meters above the monastery. He took with them two prosphora, a water vial, and an oil lantern. He had gone some distance from the monastery into the wild Athenite nature, made yet wilder by the moonless night, when he stumbled at a difficult passage, fell, and broke the water vial. Attributing the event to the envy of the devil, he went back, took another water vial, and joyfully set out again to celebrate the liturgy. But at the same spot, he stumbled again, fell, and broke the second water vial. Then, becoming angry with a holy anger against Satan, he said, Tempter, this evening I will serve liturgy at St. Anthony's no matter what you do or what obstacles you put before me. He returned, took another water vial, finally reached his destination, praying. During most of his divine liturgies, he was bathed in tears. Tears of compunction, joy, and love. His compunction culminated at the consecration. One year he was saying the dismissal prayer of the ninth hour at the leave-taking of Pascha. For all the saints, Pascha is the most moving time of the year. At the dismissal, therefore, the moment when they would take away the icon of the resurrection, he was shaken, he shed tears, he all but burst out in sobs because he was losing the resurrection. To his easily moved and sensitive soul, it appeared as if the risen Lord was ascending, was leaving them. When serving, he wanted his mind to remain undistracted during the fearful hour of the liturgy. Attention and prayer were his whole life. For this reason, he placed a curtain at the opening of the sanctuary to the side altar so that those coming in and going out would not disturb his devotion during the divine liturgy. Father David, next time, please don't pass through here, he said to one monk who repeatedly passed through the holy altar. In the reading of the gospel, he surpassed the best theologians. I liked to listen to him very much, Father Nifon says up to now, remembered that he was almost uneducated. After every divine liturgy, he immediately shut himself up in his cell. There he would pray on his knees to the Mother of God, or study the Holy Gospels, or the Evangetinos, or St. Ephraim the Syrian, his most beloved texts. As much as possible, he wished to preserve the divine illumination and the activity of the sacrament for the duration of the day. At the end of one vigil, as he was returning together with Father Pacomius to their adjoining cells, he turned and said to him, Right now I could serve yet another long vigil. This night a multitude was about me. What? What? Father Pacomius asked in perplexity. Angels of heaven, answered the devout priest. Father Pacomius visited the monastery with his father in 1931 at the age of 15 during the second week of the Great and Holy Fast. During Compline, they stood in the back of the church. 
When the fathers came out, he saw Father Philaretos, then a simple priest for the first time. He saw him as an angelic figure, with a face entirely different from the countenance of the other fathers, shining like the moon. Father Onufrius, the confessor, also confided that he once saw him during a divine liturgy, elevated two spans above the ground at the great entrance. Part 3. For I am a thy slave. 1. Let he that is chief be as he that doth serve. In the year 1949, Father Philartos was elected abbot almost unanimously, that he might be placed as a lamp upon a lampstand and illumine all that are in the house. In this honorable position and responsible rank, the elder preserved the greatest humility and increased his patience and forbearance. He knew his flock, his reasonable sheep, which of his disciples could withstand rebuke and which could not. He knew the characters of each one, their gifts and faults. Mostly by persuasion and less by the rod, he sought to raise up the negligent or inattentive to the monastic order and angelic discipline. Father Philartos was the good shepherd who could seek and heal the lost reasonable sheep by his guilelessness, by his zeal and prayer. He was the pilot who had obtained from God and his labors spiritual power and could pull up the ship even from the abyss and save it. He was the physician who had acquired immunity from disease of body and soul. He was the teacher who had received from God a spiritual book, namely by the activity of divine illumination, and had no need of other books. Rarely did he rebuke anyone for his faults. Rather, he utilized much guilelessness and meekness so that he himself might not be tempted by the demon of anger and censuring. When one novice monk was talking idly with older fathers, he summoned him in a clever manner and advised him to desist from this idle association and conversation. However, he did not scold him on the spot and publicly. He often said, after the three-layered foundation of the monastic life, namely obedience, chastity, and poverty, amongst two eyes are his daily services and his rule. The services are the prayers said together with the brothers every day in church according to the monastic typicon. And the canona, the rule, is the personal private prayer and prostrations which each monk fulfills in his cell. If you don't have one of these two, Father Philartus would say, then you are one-eyed. And if both are lacking, then you are sunk in darkness and spiritually blind. The elder wanted his children to have spiritual sight, eyes healthy and clear, minds, noose, illumined by the light of prayer and compunction. For this reason, he attended his flock sleeplessly. The Blessed One had a custom of lighting a candle after the six psalms, and walking around within the church to see which of the fathers were absent. When he ascertained someone's absence, he would send a novice to call him to Orthos, or more usually he would himself go to his cell and ask him, Brother, what's the matter? Aren't you going to come to the service? He did not forsake this habit even in his old age, despite the pain caused him by his double hernia. He thought himself jointly responsible if the absentee did not come to Orthos through negligence or the influence of sleep. But he was also moved by his love for his brethren to see if perhaps the missing brother was sick or needed immediate assistance. As abbot, 
He did the most menial chores, ministering according to the example of our master and teacher Jesus, taking the form of a servant. One would meet the elder, one time kneading the prosphora himself, another time at the oven, another time in the sewing room. He was the first in the common labors, the labors done with the, the participation and help of all the brethren. The holy abbot did not fear that he might soil his hands with these lower tasks. Rather, he knew to sanctify his hands by humble labor, to anoint them with the myrrh of humility and toil, and thus to offer them in the service of the divine and sacred mysteries. The rank of abbot was unable to change the character of Father Philartos, which was leavened with humility and simplicity. Once or twice he even wanted to resign from the abbacy, but the brothers would not let him. Ah, how I was cheated, the foolish one, he would say, when I undertook to be abbot. When I was a simple priest serving every day, I did one liturgy and flew to the heavens. And now, poisons from here, poisons from there, and many days I repent that I served. Every month the elder blessed holy water and sprinkled the monastery's vineyards and gardens regularly, and at extra times when a disease struck the plants. He would take the holy relics from the monastery to the Matokian in Halkidiki where there were flocks and olives and pine trees and sprinkle them with holy water after reading the necessary prayers. Almost always divine grace answered the heartfelt supplications of the blessed elder. One year on the feast of St. John Chrysostom, November 13th, he took out the relics of the saint and placed them on the holy table the evening before the vigil. A fragrance filled the whole Catholicon. When they entered, the fathers were perplexed and amazed. What is this? What is this fragrance? They asked one another. For the Athenite monastic conscience, the holy relics are the greatest spiritual treasure of the holy mountain, together with the sacred wonder-working icons. Through the holy relics, the fathers experience the glory of the church, triumphant amidst the militant. Heaven and earth, the heavenly and the earthly, are united. Indeed, what words can describe the greatness of the Lord who is manifested also in the grace-bearing relics of the saints? Great art thou, O Lord, and no word suffices to him thy wonders. This spirit of glorification filled also the heart of Father Philartos before the divine energy and grace of the holy relics. 2. The kingdom of heaven is taken by violence and the violent take it by force. Father Philartos had well digested this truth, spoken by the unlying mouth of our Lord. He was a violent monk. A true monk is he who continually forces his nature and uninterruptedly guards his senses. The Ladder of Divine Ascent, Step 1. This violence against himself consisted of exile, poverty, fasting, and temperance, silence, and inuring of his body to hardships. Never did he neglect his monastic duties. Every year he did the established tremero, a fast from all food and water for three days at the beginning of Great Lent. Once he even said at the end of one three-day fast, I have the strength to continue fasting yet another three days. From the hour that he entered the holy mountain, the arena of the athletes of Christ, and grasped the plow of the monastic order, he did not turn back. He did not pity himself. For the love of Christ, he 
exiled himself from all his relatives and friends. They once summoned him to come to their village. His mother wrote him letters with tears and sighs, asking him to go to give her the spotless mysteries before her death. He, taking counsel in everything from his confessor, did not even want to hear of going away from the mountain. He also had a brother, according to the flesh, named Thomas, who would come to the holy mountain two or three times a year. He also said to him, Won't you come to the village just once to serve liturgy for us? You disown us too completely. His aim was to keep him as a priest in the village. If this had been God's will, his spiritual father would have told him so, and not his worldly brother. Thomas, however, received an answer from the proto-martyr and guardian of the holy monastery, whom Father Philartos had as a personal friend and helper. It was night. Thomas was sleeping in the monastery. Suddenly, St. Stephen appeared in his sleep, strict and implacable. Ungrateful one, he said to Thomas, isn't it enough for you that you have come to see your brother, but you even want to take him to the village? Thomas arose terrified. The saint's appearance made a fearful impression. How could he again dare to think of such a scheme? The ever-memorable elder was diligent in his spiritual duties. Therefore, when admonishing his spiritual children, he would say, Fathers and brothers, let us do our spiritual duties, and divine providence will take care of all our material needs. The compassionately loving Lord will not abandon us when we renounce the world and the things of the world for his love. He will feed us. Doesn't it say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you? And he was not only diligent, but also exact. His exactness in his monastic life was exemplary. Every night he arose at midnight to do his canona. At midnight I will arise, this verse of David echoed arousingly within him. His cell was plain, ascetic, cenobitic. There was in it neither sugar, nor coffee, nor other foods as other brothers had by concession. A low stool, which he used for the noetic prayer, was transformed into a heavenly ladder by which God descended, a bridge, leading the lover of virtue and silence to heaven. When he was enthroned as abbot, the enthroning fathers wanted to see his cell. As soon as they entered it, they were struck speechless. They faced four bare walls. His bed was a few planks, and his mattress a goat-hair blanket made from those hard sacks in which olives are crushed. There was a pillow filled with dried weeds and a blanket for covering. He himself would often humbly take a broom and sweep or light the lampadas or do other menial tasks. He shunned idle talk. He shunned worldly or political subjects. Neither did he wish to see a newspaper. He was self-effacing, never bold in speech. When he talked with you being bashful, he always lowered his eyes to the earth. He did not wish to gaze at men, but at God. He was tempered in all things, a never lasping, lapsing guardian of the senses. His modesty and bashfulness inspired a boundless reverence. When the winter is severe, the snow takes 15 to 20 days to melt at Constamenitu Monastery. All the fathers had stoves in their cell. The elder did not have a stove. Father Nifon, who took care of the heating, would say to him with reverence and love, My father, we must put a stove in your room, too. Let it be, 
Elder Nifan. We'll do it later. This he said with the aim of letting the cold season pass little by little, always delaying putting heating into his own cell. Two or three years before his death, he finally received the stove. If you opened his door, never, never would you find him doing any other work in his cell except praying on his knees. Such a struggler was the Blessed One. In fasting as well, he was always a model. Yet I'm not afraid of work as long as I eat well. He was once told by Father Euthemios, who had been a peasant and shepherd in the world and who was always given heavy tasks. The body, my child, he answered him, doesn't fear work. It fears fasting. When he was over 70 years old, the ever-memorable one went by foot to Kerias, which is about three hours' journey from Constantinitu. He went together with one brother and took the mule, but did not mount it. Tireless on the road, he jumped over the branches of the shrubs like a light-hearted child. Did he act thus from love and sympathy for the mule, or from being inured to hardships and suffering? Evidently, for both reasons. He saw the mule. He philosophized. This also is God's creation, made to serve and minister to man, that great miracle, and at the same time, dead corpse. In the soul of a monk, with time, the feeling is born and consolidated. I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to minister even to the dumb animals by enduring hardship and toil for their sakes. the gift of clairvoyance. In monasteries, Mondays are set aside as fast days, besides the Wednesdays and Fridays. One Monday, therefore, when the monastery guestmaster happened to be absent, the young assistant guestmaster, Father C., fell into the temptation of secret eating. Without a blessing, he boiled vegetables and fried potatoes in the special kitchen of the guesthouse. He was ready to begin the meal when he heard the footsteps of the abbot outside and he hurried to hide the food in a cupboard. The door opened, and in came Father Filartos. My child, he said to him, bring the potatoes and vegetables you prepared so we can eat together. The assistant guestmaster was struck speechless. How did the abbot know what he had cooked? At first he wanted to deny it, but the elder said to him kindly, I won't give you a penance for what you did. Bring the food so we can eat. One can guess at the repentance of Father C, and also marvel at the clairvoyance, the leniency, and the pastoral skill of the wise abbot. The hero of this incident was the assistant guestmaster. The following will present the guestmaster himself. The guestmaster had a good habit. On his name's day, he would invite the fathers to the guesthouse and treat them to coffee and a sweet. One year, however, he closed the guesthouse and shut himself in his cell. This did not pass by unobserved by the abbot, Father Filaret. He went to the guestmaster's cell and said to him with a cheerful look, Why didn't you offer treats to the brothers? To avoid the labor or for some other reason? To avoid the labor, the guestmaster answered contritely. Ah, my child, you've really missed the mark. Today you will have to endure much harder work. Saying this, he departed. And indeed, a little later, a brother informed the guest master, Go immediately and prepare the guest quarters. 
Governor Goulas of Palygyros is coming with the doctor and three clerks, and they need special care. Later, the abbot met him. Remember what I told you, my child. I certainly remember, Yeronda. I endured fourfold labor, answered the guest master. Another incident shows Father Filaret's deep humility and simplicity as well as his clairvoyance. In 1959, Father Zacharias of the Holy Monastery of Grigoriu invited his friend, Father Pacomius, to participate in the celebration of the Feast of St. Nicholas. A week in advance, Father Pacomius asked a blessing from the abbot to go out to the celebration. On the eve of the feast, the abbot came to the guest house and said to him with simplicity, Will you take me to the celebration as well? Before God, elder, it would be a great honor to accompany you. Father Pacomius answered eagerly. As he had no money, Father Philartos humbly asked for 50 drachmas from the treasurer for the motorboat fare. However, since the Athenite etiquette provides that the abbot should be accompanied by one of the officers of the monastery, he was careful that no one should see them together. He wanted to avoid rivalry and scandal. However, he said to Father Pacomius, You will have a temptation, but don't be afraid, it will pass. When they reached Daphne, the temptation which was to trouble them came. A certain merchant shouted to Father Pacomius, You're wanted on the telephone! One of the most more difficult officers of the monastery at that time, the representative Incarius, was waiting indignantly on the other end of the line. He immediately burst out at Father Pacomius. Aren't you ashamed? Who gave you the right to accompany the abbot? Don't you know that only officers accompany him? Fortunately, the brethren of Grigoriu soon consoled him. It was noon when they arrived at the holy monastery of Grigoriu, but one hero monk, seeing them in time, ran to the harbor, welcomed them, took their bag on his back, and protested to Father Philartos. Why didn't you tell us you were coming, elder, so we could welcome you properly? In the abbot's quarters, Abbot Basarion now reposed rose and embraced him. What joy your visit to our monastery gives us, he said with feeling. He ceded to him the abbot's room and the first place in the feast day of the vigil, in which, let it be noted, twenty priests concelebrated. Father Philarto's gift of clairvoyance had manifested itself while he was still a simple priest, when he had foreseen the death of his sister. He had gone to Father Simeon, then the abbot, and said to him, Elder, my sister will die tonight. How do you know? The abbot asked him, surprised. I know. The modest hero monk answered humbly. In a few days, a sorrowful letter came to the monastery exactly confirming Father Filarto's prophecy. Those who knew the elder well began to count seriously on this extraordinary gift. At least so it appears from the following incident. A young monk of Constamanitu had an uncle, the monk Yoasaf, his first cousin of his father, who lived in the cell of Radukhu in Kiryas. Excuse the pronunciation. This uncle repeatedly came to the monastery and besought his nephew to come and stay with him in Kyrgyz in order to build him his cell. The young Constamanitu monk hesitated, but finally he gave in to the persistent supplications. Therefore he agreed that the uncle would come to the celebrations of Saints Constantine and Helen and that they would leave secretly during the vigil. And although until then the nephew had had the saving monastic custom of confessing all his thoughts to Father Filler, even before he became abbot. This one f 
frightful thought he avoided mentioning. The eve of the feast came, and the monastery prepared for the feast day vigil. The uncle also set out from Kiryas on a mule which was noted for its uh, docility. This afternoon, however, the mule was unexpectedly wayward and threw him down. Father Yosef arrived at the monastery with wounds on his face. His nephew cleaned away the blood, but the marks remained. In the middle of Orthos, after the Palielos, Father Philartos discreetly approached the wounded visitor and said to him, Elder, can I say something to you out in the narthex? Gladly, answered Father Yosef, and the two went out. Why did you come to our monastery? he asked him. Aren't you celebrating a vigil? I came for that. Unfortunately, you did not come for that. You came to take the young monk. Pay close attention. If you come a second time and persist in your attention, the mule will kill you. Father Yosef was speechless. As soon as he met his nephew and found a suitable opportunity, he told him the prophecy. Then the nephew said to him, If Father Philartos prophesied this to you, my dear uncle, you mustn't dare to set foot here again to take me away. 4. The Elder's Devotion to the Theotokos O all-praised Mother who does bear the word, more holy than all the saints, accept this our offering and deliver us from all calamity and redeem us from future torments, those who cry out in one voice, Alleluia. How many times in this life, how many times in the 51 years of his monasticism did he say this hymn, together with the whole Akathis to the Mother of God? His soul perceived the all-praised Mother truly bearing the word most holy, and took refuge in her divinely mothering love with hope, faith, and a devotion which strongly characterizes the lives of all the saints. He said the Akathist many times a day. Always after the divine liturgy, he hurried to his cell, lit a lampada before the sweet-kissing icon of the Lady Theotokos, Glicophilusa, and with love and piety began the hymn. An angel and the chiefest among them was sent from heaven to cry to the mother of God, Rejoice! He also advised his disciples to pray often with the Akathis to the Theotokos. With a simplicity which distinguished him, he would say, as if to scold them, Why don't you love the Panagia? For a penance, he would tell all who confessed to him, both laymen and monks, to say the Akathis at least once with a lampada lit before her icon. Oh, the love for the Panagia, which pulls us out of Hades, the Hades of our egotism, our despair and the passions, and leads us to the paradise of humility. Once, a Bulgarian monk named Father Ignatius came to Father Philart. After they had conversed for a while, the elder, as always, asked him with his sweet voice, Do you read the salutations every day? Yes, I read them, not the whole Akathist. Only the salutations, answered the Bulgarian monk, who had not understood exactly what the elder had said. Uh, show me what you read, said the elder, to be sure. Monk Ignatius took out a gold-bound little book in the Bulgarian language, opened it, and showed him. Indeed, he showed him the beginning, namely, an archangel was sent from heaven. But to be even more sure, Father Philartos turned one or two pages to the place where is written, the shepherds heard, and so on. 
What's written here? he asked him. And the Bulgarian monk, who knew very little Greek, answered him with his thick accent. Here it says, the herders got wind. Smiling like a child, the elder said, Good, good, you understand what the salutations are. Always say them. Don't ever omit them. Together with the Akathist, he fervently loved to read and recommend the Theotokarion, a book with special canons and hymns to the Mother of God for every day. In his monastery, it was in the Tipicon, but he himself read it wherever he went or happened to be. This devotion to the Mother of God changed Father Philaretos into a, a fragrant lily in the evergreen garden of the Penagia. Daily, he was nourished in his cell like a sparrow alone upon the housetop by his spiritual nurse and mother, and his soul as a servant, as a handmaiden, at the hands of her mistress, asked the spiritual milk of the grace of the All-Immaculate One, repeating again and again his beloved Theotokarion, as a servant raises his outward eyes to the hands of his own master, O All-Praised One, so I too lift up both outward and inward eyes to thee, my mistress, my lady, and my life, as thou hast pity on me. If the Panagia is for all monks, a mother and nurse and guardian, the ever-virgin protectress and leader of virgins, she is so even more so for the monks of the holy mountain. In the minds of the fathers of Manathos, she is obligated to be so by the promises she gave to St. Peter the Athenite about the whole mountain and those who dwell there. They consider her as much their own as the mother and mistress of a house is to her children. For this reason, all the festivals of the Mother of God are accompanied by vigils, while the Feast of the Dormition is celebrated with particular splendor and inspires such enthusiasm as to be a second Pascha. Souls leap with joy. The angel-like ascetics of Athos exult, and like sweet singing nightingales hymn the greatness of the all-blameless bride, the sweet springtime, and her most holy child. Part 4. The exposition of thy words enlightens and instructs infants. 1. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we were to try to paint the spiritual figure of Father Philaret, the strongest and most characteristic color given him, the first created beauty, would be the color of meekness. He was meek, guileless, forgetful of wrongs, and never angry. His soul was merciful, long-suffering, and full of pity, a true dwelling of God. For in truth, where there is quietness and meekness and humility, there God dwells. From the book of Barsanufius and John. An icon of meekness, bright and living, was the blessed elder, and that is why he received such a wealth of grace and wisdom. None of the virtues, writes Evagrius, so gives birth to wisdom as does meekness. This saying is most true. Almost uneducated, a graduate of the third grade, Father Philaret, by reason of this evangelical Christ-imitating virtue of meekness, acquired such wisdom that many who knew him said that it seemed as if the Holy Spirit, and not he himself, spoke through his mouth. He spoke simply, without adornment, but wisely. We can observe this God-taught wisdom and God-given grace in many saints of our church as a fruit of their great humility, 
for example, in Moses, David, and Abba Basarium, by whose meekness reports Pelagius, even wild beasts were tamed. Quote, then we saw in the Thebaid another old man, a Yeronda called Abba Bess, who surpassed everyone in meekness. The brothers who lived round about him assured us that he never swore an oath, had never told a lie, had never been angry with anyone, had never scolded anyone. For he lived a life of the utmost stillness, and his manner was sincere, since he had attained the angelic state. He was extremely humble and held himself of no account. We pressed him strongly to speak a word of encouragement to us, but he only consented to say a little about meekness, and was reluctant to do even that. Once, when a hippopotamus was ravaging the neighboring countryside, the farmers called on this holy father to help them. He stood at the place and waited, and when he saw the beast, which was an enormous size, he commanded it in a gentle voice, saying, In the name of Jesus Christ, I order you not to ravage the countryside anymore. The hippopotamus, as if driven away by an angel, vanished completely from that district. On another occasion, he got rid of a crocodile in the same way. Excerpt from the Lives of the Desert Fathers. To continue, a certain person told Elder Philaret about a vision he had read about in the life of a saint, namely, that when a divine liturgy is finished, the angels take the prosphoras and carry them up to the throne of God. Once, the divine liturgy at the Holy Sepulchre finished later than those at the other churches and the other angels had to wait for it to finish in order to follow behind its angels in elevating their prosphoras. Therefore, from then on, the zealous and most simple Elder Philaret wanted his own divine liturgy to finish before the others on the holy mountain, lest by chance he might delay the holy angels. Such was his simplicity. Therefore, he appointed only a little time to rest after Orthos in order to begin divine liturgy all the earlier. In the interval between the services, he never slept for fear that he might be tempted during sleep, while the whole time he worried that the angels might be waiting to raise his prosphoras to the throne of God. Therefore, he almost always rang the warning bell prematurely and knocked on the door of the ecclesiarch, telling him to prepare the church, light the lampadas, and so on. This habit offended the fathers, and especially the ecclesiarch, who is res also responsible for ringing the bells. But everyone was patient with this pious weakness of his. At one vigil, the ecclesiarch, Father Gennadios, asked Father Philaretos, Yet unto how many hours will we have between Orthos and the Divine Liturgy? The answer was, Two hours. But since it was certain that the elder, according to his custom, would strike the wake-up bell earlier, he could not endure it. This time he went and locked the door of the church. All had retired and were quiet in their cells. The elder stayed awake. Every one in a while, every once in a while, he looked at his watch. Finally, when it reached one after midnight, he went and rang the bell. Afterwards, he knocked on the door of the ecclesiarch's room and timidly and shyly called him to get up. As this brother was a little hot-tempered, he avoided irritating him, for one thing that the brother might not be incriminated, and for another that he himself might not be reproached by his conscience as undiscerning. Father Gennadios, eh, Father Gennadios, Evlogite, bless, what is it? What's the matter? He answered from within a half-sleep.
It's me, the elder. Well, aren't you coming down to light the lampadas? Very well, very well, I'm coming, he said, and continued sleeping. Father Philaret therefore descended the stairs, went to the door of the church, took another key, tried to open it. In vain. The door didn't open. Again he climbed the stairs and knocked on the cell of Father Gennadius, but to no effect. He went down and waited outside the church. Silence everywhere, no response. Meanwhile, his simple and ingenious heart was anxious. He thought he would be late in serving the liturgy and what would become of his prosphoras, which the angels were to take. Again, he tried to open the door, nothing. At that moment, Elder Nephon, one of the old fathers, pious and ascetic, of the same age as, as Elder Philaret, came down the stairs. Hey, Father Nephon, can you open the door for me? He said beseechingly like a small child asking a great favor. Well, my elder, what hour is this that you are ringing the bell? The elder began to justify himself charmingly and finally said, And that blessed Father Gennadius has locked me out. Then Father Nephon, with a serious face but a laughing heart, answered him, It's good that he did. You do this to us every time. Elder Philaret was sitting outside in the freezing winter night, therefore recollected, unspeaking, and praying when Father Gennadius arrived, frantic, and began a series of complaints. The Yeronda, feeling that he had acted badly in breaking his word about when the vigil would resume, humbly bowed his head and said, Bless me, bless me. And with a weakness that would often soften even the most stony heart, he made a prostration to his disciple in order to serve the liturgy. The bless and may it be blessed, the evlogite and nine evlogimeno, which are difficult words for some monks, were natural and easy for Father Philaret. They were his personal trademarks, not only as a disciple, but also as abbot, although he avoided faults as much as possible. He said to the good-intentioned, in order to rouse them to an easier acceptance of their faults, and to the bad-intentioned, in order to calm them with his own patience and meekness. Learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. These words of the Lord directed his every thought and every word and every action. And he always conquered with his gentle manner. This monk, Gennadios, he had a hard character, difficult to govern, but by the elder's kindness and exulting humility, he became with time obedient, a true lamb. As we read in the patristic narratives, meekness subdues even fierce wild beasts. Much more can it tame fierce humans. There was also another monk, more disobedient than Father Gennadius. It, was not, it will not harm the conscience of the reader, we think, to report his unbecoming and insolent behavior, knowing indeed that in the community of monks, as in a garden, thorns will suddenly spring up. On the contrary, we will thus manifest the virtue of the Yeron de Filaratos. This wretched and impudent monk had for a time the obedience of ecclesiarch, and he very often disobeyed the abbot and the officers. One day in church the elder said to him, My child, fix the, the thick candle of St. Stephen before it will be ruined. The monk turned, stared at him with a rude look, and remained motionless in his stasidi. After a while, however, to avoid a new request from the elder, he got up and went into the altar. The elder, 
feeling sorry for the thick candle, arose from his stasidi and himself went and cleaned and trimmed the wick. At exactly that moment, the nominal disciple came out of the altar and said to him angrily, What do you mean by meddling in somebody else's work? Are you an abbot or a torment? Now, my child, just so that the large candle wouldn't be ruined, the elder said, and then grieved as a man, he bent his head and returned to his stasidi, softly whispering a complaint. Ach, ach, then they will tell you it's good, we're guiding young monks. As soon as Vespers ended, the warning bell for Trapeza sounded. One of his disciples came and called him. Elder, come to Trapeza. But the elder remained motionless in his place with bowed head. Another came and said the same thing. The elder didn't move. He came near and saw that the elder was half unconscious. He had suffered a hemiplegia. The fathers lifted him up, took him to the old age infirmary, and gave him first aid. Later, he recovered sufficiently to continue his duties. Satan's greatest warfare against a disciple aims at disturbing his harmonious relationship with his elder. The great glory of Sinai, St. John of the Latter tells us, from step four, do not think strange what I am about to say, for I have Moses to support me. It is better to sin against God than against our Father, for when we anger God, our director can reconcile us. But when he is incensed against us, we no longer have anyone to make propitiation for us. The saying of the Holy Apostle, Let every wrath and shouting and anger and blasphemy cease from you with every evil. Ephesians 4.31 Found incarnation in the elder. Peaceful and quiet was his company, like a harbor without waves, without the least storm nor turbulence. Never did he murmur nor complain. He was an inexhaustible reservoir of patience and forbearance. During the sessions of the monastery which he held with the officers, he would sit humbly, listening. Elder, they would ask him, what do you say about this matter? What can I say, fathers? Let it be as you say. At other times, at the end of the meeting, he would say, I will speak now also, fathers and brothers. Preparing, O man, to eat the body of the master, first be reconciled with those who have grieved you, then with daring venture to consume the mystical food. This was the living experience of the good abbot Philaret. His soul could not be at peace if there was any difference between him and any brother. Once he interrupted the proskimidi before divine liturgy and said to the monk Philaret, My child, go and tell Father Paisios, his disciple, to come so we can make prostrations. There has come a coolness between us and I can't continue. And as soon as Father Paisios appeared, the elder and disciple made prostrations, at the same time asking forgiveness from one another. He could make prostrations even to novices if he felt he had troubled them in any way. Such was the unclouded, childlike heart of Father Philaret. St. Isaac the Syrian had captured his heart by his words about meekness and peace from Homily 58. If thou lovest meekness, remain in peace. And if thou art vouchsafed peace, thou wilt rejoice at every hour. Seek wisdom and not money. Clothe thyself in humility and not in royal sumptuous garments. Acquire peace and not the kingdom. He who is not peaceful is not humble. 
and a peaceful man cannot be otherwise than always joyful. In all the paths which men pursue in this world, they do not find peace until they draw near to the hope of God. Amen. 2. The Elder's Simplicity and Innocence It would be a great omission from this portrayal of the blessed Elder Philaret not to devote a chapter to his simplicity, which became proverbial among those who knew him. He was another Paul the Simple, guileless and unsophisticated. At that time, there were banknotes for 10 drachmas and 100 drachmas, but their size was in inverse relation to their worth. The 10 drachma bill was larger in size than the 100 drachma bill. Well, the simple, ungreedy, unavisurous, and unacquisitive Father Filaret, who rarely used any money, he thought simply that the ten dollar, the ten drachma bill, as being the larger size, was worth more than the one hundred drachma bill. One time, his disciple Father P asked a blessing to go to Caries to have his tooth fixed. The elder used to put money, whatever money his spiritual children in the world sent him, for forty day liturgies or as alms, into his prayer book until he handed it over to the steward. He took out the prayer book and and gave me a hundred drachma bill. Related Father P. afterwards, he thought and said, Hey, take this better one. Maybe the money won't be enough. And taking back the 100 drachma bill, he offered me a 10 drachma bill. Simplicity, passionlessness, detachment. Three years before his death, the brethren insisted that he go to Thessaloniki to be operated on for the hernias from which he had suffered for many years. After much pressure, he finally yielded. Before departing, he served a moliban to St. Stephen, kissed his right hand, and made a prostration to all the brethren. He had not gone out into the world for fifty years. Everything seemed strange to him. When he saw the automobiles on the roads, he said to his companions, Fathers, I didn't know there are carriages without horses. He remembered the old carriages pulled by horses some fifty years before. When he first entered the hospital and saw the nursing sisters dressed in white, he glorified God. God has sent angels to serve me, he said, and he hid his head under his sheets from shame. Living on the holy mountain, he didn't remember what women are like. He thought of them as St. Marina, St. Barbara, and so on. There lived in Constamanito Monastery also another monk, unrivaled in his simplicity, Father Agapios previously a herdsman with flocks of sheep and goat. Father Filaret the Simple himself told a merry story about him. When Father Agapios was fulfilling his monastic novitiate in the Matokian of Tripotamos, the steward told him one day, Apostolos, that was his worldly name, put out some boiled eggs to eat with the food, but leave them soft. May it be blessed, elder, said Apostolos, and ran to fulfill the command. After a while, Apostolos removed an egg from the boiling water, squeezed it here, squeezed it there, put it back in. A little later, he came back, took out another egg and tested it. Still no good. He did the same a third time and realized with surprise that the eggs, for all the boiling, were not softening. He called the steward elder Germanos and said to him with obvious grievance, Elder, these blessed eggs aren't good for boiling. 
I've been boiling them ever so long, but they're not getting soft. Then Elder Germanus, unable to restrain his laughter, told him, Leave them in a little longer, Apostolus, and they'll get soft. And Apostolus answered very seriously, May it be blessed, Elder. Part 5. Thy judgments have I not forgotten. 1. A discerning confessor. You will be unable to come to discernment if you do not labor at its cultivation. See first to silence. Isaiah. The elder's hesychistic life in the synobium, as far as was possible, prayer, purification of the heart, gave him noetic light and discernment of spiritual matters. The many monks and lay Christians who confessed to Father Philaret experienced both the measureless love and the enlightened discernment of the spiritual father. Mr. Constantine Constopoulos was the distinguished civil governor of the Holy Mountain for 12 years from 1951 to 1963. He took care to visit the Holy Monastery of Constamanitu often and to confess to Father Philard. When he was asked why he did this, he answered, I respect the abbot most deeply. I marvel at his discernment and wisdom and at the endless number of biblical sayings he uses, though he is almost uneducated. His fame as a holy confessor had spread far. He received letters with written confessions, even from Australia. The elder co-suffered with his penitence. Almost always he sprinkled his epitrachelion of forgiveness and compassion with his tears and mingled the prayers of absolution with compunction overflowing from the superabundant grace. One time a hero deacon from a monastery outside the holy mountain, he came to confess to the elder. When I began to confess, he told us, the elder wept. I was also moved with him. I felt a compunction I had never known before. Afterwards, the elder said to me, Stay on the mountain, my child, and don't go back into the world, where there are so many temptations. Among other things, your finances won't go well. You have 35,000 drachmas in your pocket. I had almost exactly what he said. The hero deacon finally remained on the mountain, became a schema monk, and today is still alive. He gave another penitent, a layman, advice on how to handle certain concrete future temptations. Indeed, he had foreseen all his difficulties. After Father Philaret's repose, this orthodox layman asked the monastery for a relic of the elder. During his period of convalescence in the hospital in Thessaloniki, pious layman formed a long line to receive the blessing and counsel of the simple man of God. Many souls he gave rest in the harbor for those sailing on the sea of life. Many souls he gave peace as a peacemaking son of God. Many married couples he helped to resolve their quarrels and disperse the temptations of the devil. The mere presence of the God-bearing Father brought brilliant results. One thinks of the true saying of the Holy Elder, St. Seraphim of Serov, and sees it fulfilled in the peaceful Father Philaret. Acquire the spirit of peace and thousands around you will be saved. In the year 1948, he rescued the son of an inhabitant of Ithesurus, excuse me, from the dangers of the civil war by his prayers and advice. Let us note a few of the biblical and patristic admonitions which he used to give to his spiritual children. 
Let us take care not to leave the fields of our souls uncultivated. If they remain uncultivated, it will be difficult to clean and to till them later. Pursue righteousness and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. God does not enter into a foolish heart, and if he enters in, he quickly goes out. A mind that has left the contemplation of God becomes either like a demon or a beast. Next to Konstantinitu Monastery is the holy monastery of Zografu, inhabited by Bulgarian Orthodox monks. They esteemed the elder highly and came to confess to him and receive spiritual direction. And with his large heart, he always received them as an affectionate father and loving brother. When I was still a young monk, Father P. related, I found myself having to go to the world. Don't be afraid, the elder told me. I will pray for you. During my stay in the world, I endured terrible attacks. The burning arrows of the evil one for 13 days. From a provocative woman who suggested sin to me. But something astonishing happened to me. You could say I wasn't myself. You could say I was without feeling, a stone. The prayers of Father Philaret were so powerful that the attacks of the young woman didn't trouble me at all. The voice of St. John of the Ladder echoed loudly in the ears of the good governor of souls. From the word to the shepherd, If you have received eyes to foresee the surge of the troubled sea, foretell it clearly to the ship's company, lest you prove to be the cause of shipwreck, since with complete confidence all have entrusted you with the pilot ship. 3. A Christian ending to our lives the elder received the first blow to his health in church on that day of the unprincipled behavior of his stiff-necked disciple. In three months he recovered, but even after his health was unstable, while before then he had never been sick even with a headache. The second blow came three years later when he became bedridden with hemiplegia. The father summoned two doctors to examine him. They told him, if he doesn't come around in three days, the end will come. And truly, on January 22, 1963, the venerable and loving elder, Father Philaret, delivered his soul into the hands of his beloved Lord and God and Savior. He fell in battle, standing on the spiritual ramparts of pastoralship, love, patience, and asceticism. The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and the hand of the tormentor shall not touch them. He that believeth on me, even if he dieth, shall live. The Lord came to earth to abolish by his resurrection the dominion of death, to crush its power and disperse its fear. The souls of the virtuous and the virtue-loving are in the hand of God. During the night of the elder's holy repose, his already reposed mother appeared to her daughter-in-law in sleep and said to her, For fifty-one years I have been waiting for him to come, and tonight at midnight you will send him to me. Let it be noted that he had never left the holy mountain, except for one time when after much pressure he'd gone away for medical reasons out of obedience. The venerable abbot of the holy monastery of Dionysius, the beloved father Gabriel, protested when they did not notify him in time to come to his funeral. When he visited the monastery, he knelt at the elder's grave. He sang the Trisagian hymn and took a little earth in a clean handkerchief as a keepsake. His spiritual children, as well as the new brothers of Constamanitu Monastery, preserve and continue the ascetic Athenite tradition by the holy prayers and intercessions before the Lord of the ever-memorable Elder Philaret, and they hold his luminous person in great reverence and esteem. 
One example of this respect is the followed metered encomium to the Blessed Elder by the monk Mark. What your stature lacked in height, exalting humbleness supplied. Your intellect's simplicity, a treasury of good thoughts enriched. Your voice, a little harsh in sound, ceaseless prayer beautified. Your awkward words, unskillfulness, your eager brotherly love perfected. But more than all, your love for Christ and your heart's bright purity harmoniously interlaced. You gem-like character, O childlike elder Philaret. Today, 15 years after the transfer of his holy relics, one of his spiritual children preserves some bones which have an amber color and emit a delicate, sweet, and heavenly fragrance. His skull has the figure of a cross in the frontal bones. These signs are confirmations of his virtue-loving life and God-pleasing struggles. Perhaps in the last moments of his life, the illumined noose of Father Philaret was accompanied by the verses of Psalm 118, which is read in every monastery during the midnight service. Wonderful thoughts are contained in it, compunction, devotion, love, and divine longing for the testimonies, the judgments of the Lord, the words sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. In the monastic silence of the Catholicon, the fathers were reading the third stasis of Psalm 118, verses well-fitting in the mouth of the ever-memorable elder during his last moments. Look upon me and have mercy upon me, according to the judgments of those who love thy name. Thy zeal has consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy word. Thy word is tried by fire, and thy servant has loved it. I am young and accounted as nothing, yet thy judgments have I not forgotten. At this point, Father Philaret, who perpetually kept the memory of the judgments of the Lord, gave up the spirit. Contemporary men think they will become happier if they struggle for the predominance of the rights of man. Father Philaret, in contrast with the worldly way of thinking, became blessed because he set aside the ego and conquered self-love, which is the cause of most evils. He struggled never to forget the judgments of God. Thus he was able to repeat, Thy judgments, O Lord, have I not forgotten. Amin. End of the life of Elder Philaret of Constamanitu.